Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. I am sitting here in Stillwater, Minnesota. I'm going to give a talk tonight to an organization called CFACT, Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. This is the first organization I spoke to, or or spoke for rather, when I started Center for Industrial Progress back in 2011. So it brings back a lot of fond memories. It's it's nice to say be a little bit more prominent as a as a speaker and make a little bit better living as a speaker. But I'll be speaking about a similar topic. I'll be speaking about uh, the moral case for fossil fuels. Anyway, the the reason I was thinking about this is because I'm looking outside. It's it's a great day. I'm about to uh, go spend some time with my friends, and going outside the air is so nice. And I ask, what is this great place powered by? And my friend says, coal. So those who listen to the show should not be too surprised by that because coal is a material that can be used in incredibly beneficial ways with incredibly small levels of risks and side effects. Uh, but most people do not realize that. I think they think that using coal for electricity is the equivalent of setting it on fire on your floor and burning, uh, breathing in the fumes. So previous episodes on coal, you can learn more about that, but that's just a thought that struck me. Anyway, speaking of coal and speaking of energy and speaking of power hour, today we're going to talk about energy freedom and in particular the threats to energy freedom. This is a big issue in general and there are a couple of upcoming things that you might not know about so I wanted that that there will be the potential to get involved in so I wanted to bring in an expert in in particular the threats to energy freedom and that is Mark Morano. Mark has been on the show before. He's a, he's been a journalist for decades. He's particularly expert in the international scene, what's happening globally around the world, threatening energy freedom, particularly in the name of climate catastrophism. So definitely listen to the last episode with him where he spoke about the evolution of the international movement against fossil fuels. But today we're going to talk about, among other things, the Paris agreements, which are coming up later this year. He's going to be involved there. He, he goes to them in person a lot. I, I don't think that I will be. There's a possibility that I'll go, but he'll give us the inside scoop on that. He'll also give us some analysis of what's been what's been attacking energy freedom recently, and we'll talk about what, what solutions can we enact, what, what can we do as citizens to fight this. So uh, we will be joined by Mark Morano on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined again by Mark Morano of Climate Depot and CFACT. Mark, welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. Happy to be here today. All right. So last time we heard a lot of interesting background from you about the, the I would call it the international assault on energy freedom, particularly fossil fuel freedom in the name of the climate issue, which you've been involved with for many, many decades. Now, I want to start out with something that I believe, I don't even know if you said it on the last show. I remember I found out somewhere near the last show, but it's something that's evolved considerably since then. And that's a documentary you've been working on called Climate Hustle. So what's what's going on with Climate Hustle? What is it and, and when can we see it? Well, this film is set to premiere December 7th, a day that will live in infamy for the global warming movement. It's a, we're, we have a 100-year-old theater in Paris, and we are going to be debuting the opening week of the high-level uh, talks of the United Nations Climate Summit in Paris. It's the week President Obama will be arriving, all the world leaders, and the, it's the time they'll be trying to hammer out a meeting. We are going to have a red carpet premiere. And instead of Hollywood celebrities getting out, instead of Joan Rivers commenting on their clothing, we're going to have PhD climatologists and scientists with peer-reviewed studies under their belt arriving by vehicle, getting out, talking to photographers and cameramen and reporters as they arrive on the red carpet. This film, I hope, is set to rock the climate debate. And, what I, and the reason I think this is a unique film 
is we are going for a pop culture friendly humor, sarcastic approach, and we actually feature both sides in this movie. This is not your typical, uh, you know, conservative libertarian documentary that just says this is our best case and we interview a lot of experts. This instead is very interactive. And what I mean by that is we teamed up with the Media Research Center and they, they allowed us to have some of their archives and we were able to have archives on demand. So we have video clips going back to the 1970s and we pull out quotes from the 1970s warning about global cooling, everyone from Walter Cronkite to ABC News. And then we go into the 1980s, 1990s and the 2000s and we have all the climate claims that they made and we have current claims and we have skeptical scientists debating it back. I also interviewed the head of the one of the lead authors of the United Nations, IPCC, Michael Oppenheimer. And we have some uh, interesting contentious interviews on there on that. So I try to present essentially both sides. I let the viewer make up their mind. But we also go through at the heart of this whole movement. And we have a lot of fun with all their contrary claims. And we especially go into, Alex, the claims of less snow due to global warming. Snow is a thing of the past. And then as we hit record snow and massive blizzards, uh, they instantly turned and said that more snow uh, was a consequence of global warming. So regardless of whether it was more or less snow, it was always caused by global warming. And we so we, we get into that heavily as well. So I'm hoping this film reaches, and I don't mean this as an insult, but the low information voter who just, and the viewer, who just doesn't follow global warming that close, doesn't want to get into the science that much, although we do get into the science, but it's a presentation that shows you through logic uh, the flaws in the global warming uh, movement. So in terms of the, the distribution of it, let's say somebody watches it, really likes it, thinks, wow, this is a particularly effective, uh, persuasive tool. How can they how can they share it? How will it be how how will it be available? Well, first off, we're gonna we're shooting for a national uh, theater event. Uh, and we're looking for hundreds of theaters nationwide, and we're gonna have a uh, and we're gonna um, have probably you know, one to three day uh, uh, showing. You know, the last big global warming movie came out was a global warming alarmist film, and that was actually distributed by Sony Pictures, and that was called Merchants of Doubts, which oddly enough starred me as well. In fact, the New York Times and other reviewers said I was the star of the movie because I was the arch villain that they set up in the movie. Well, that movie only made enough to buy, I think someone estimated, two Priuses at the time at the box office, <laughs> despite despite massive distribution. And of course, I think it's available on Netflix now and it's on Fios and it's now DVD. So what we're trying to do is get a big theatrical event across the country and then we'll probably do something on cable television and then we'll do DVD sales. And then I hope to break into um, the schools, be it the university level, high school and beyond, because I think they're the ones children, uh, you know, anyway, I say children loosely, but anyone under the age of 22 where they're still getting education need to hear the other perspective. And most importantly, what's different about this film than any other film, and that includes the global warming swindle the BBC did, or I believe it was the BBC, the British no, one. No, no, it wasn't BBC, it was Channel 4. I remember Channel 4. BBC the, got I, mad that they would be that's right, there's the associated with anything skeptical of catastrophism. That's right. It was the uh, their competitions in Britain. Uh, the difference between this and other other skeptical documentaries, we profile politically left scientists. And I mean, people who voted for Al Gore, French Socialist Party members and geophysicists, scientists who then examine the evidence and reverse themselves. And we have many scientists who who actually were on the global warming team, if you will, who then got and ClimateGate played a big role in this in 2009, 2010, and then re-examined the evidence and are now skeptical. So we profile all of them and then we go heavily into what happened to them after they announced their skepticism. And we actually have clips in this film with global warming scientists saying, Holocaust denier, uh, global warming denier. There's not much difference between the two. And it's powerful stuff. I and mean, the, the viewers who are watching this, again, you, they are going to see a debate. You're going to see Bernie Sanders comparing skeptics to Hitler. Uh, or actually not Hitler, but to people who, who denied Hitler was a threat. Uh, that global warming would be the Hitler in this analogy. And we go through and uh, we also go through a whole humorous section on tipping points and we have the countdown we're starting in the 1980s with all the global warming tipping points and how they failed to come through and how they just put a big x through the deadline and kept extending it so i really think this is going to be entertaining informative um and i hope it uh i hope it's uh 
uh, it, it grabs a large audience uh, because this has the potential to actually restructure this climate debate right now, which I think many Republican candidates, if you look at the presidential candidates, they're flailing on this. I mean, Marco Rubio is now moving over to Chris Christie and they're sort of talking about solutions, if you will, to global warming. So Republicans are in, in bad shape on this issue at the moment. Well, as you know, uh, I mentioned it a little bit earlier before the show, and, and listeners know I'm, I'm at work on helping the Republicans put together, I mean, not that they've asked me, but uh, putting together <laughs> something that I will, I think, persuade people to, to use, and, and the flailing is one of the main things that's going on and needs to be solved. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing this. Hopefully, I'll find a way to get in advance. Well, uh, sure, you'll, I'll definitely... It. I'll try to make sure. Yeah, we'll have it. We're doing final tweaks. You can go on climatehustle.com is the website. And uh, there's also – we'll have a, a new trailer just about coming out. It should be out in the next couple of weeks, uh, which will have more clips from the film and as we head into the big Paris premiere in December. All right. How many people can go to that premiere? If I, uh, maybe if I'm in Paris, I'll try to score. Yes, you're, you're absolutely be welcome to. We want you to walk the red carpet. And yeah, uh, I don't think I've ever walked a – an actual uh, red carpet. I mean, walked on red carpets, but yeah, um, it, it, I, I don't know actual capacity. We're hoping well over a hundred, maybe several hundred. It's an old, old theater. The old, you know, uh, it, I believe it was built in the nineteen hundreds. So it's a, it's going to be a, a lot of character, and we're expecting a huge media event, and we're going to have a bunch of our scientists who appear in the movie in Paris with us. All right. Well, Paris brings up the, the broader issue I wanted to bring you on to talk about, which is the, uh, the current and then upcoming threats to energy freedom. So I definitely want to talk a lot about Paris. But before we get to that, let's talk about what's been happening on the landscape in, let's say, the last six months in particular. Because if we go back, you know, we go back several years, particularly about five years back to the defeat of cap and trade, or at least a temporary defeat, you had uh, a national outcry against the idea of crippling the economy through dramatic restrictions of fossil fuels in the name of somehow stabilizing the climate. And yet what we've had with the president is he's tried a workaround around going through Congress. And so tell us, tell us about what's going on there and what you think that means for uh, energy freedom and freedom more broadly in this country. Right. Well, let's go back even further. But you're you're absolutely right. Uh, what's happened since the cap and trade was last defeated, I believe you could say 2011 when Harry Reid, uh, 2010, when Harry Reid failed to move the cap and trade bill, which passed the House of Representatives, he failed to move it forward in the Senate. He let it die without a vote. Well, if you go back, first of all, to the Kyoto Protocol signing back in the 1990s, the, the Senate was never going to allow that to be ratified. It essentially was dead on arrival. George Bush was elected, G.W. Bush, in 2000, and he actually was talking about emission limitations and was going to do all sorts of regulating of carbon dioxide. Well, then finally they backed away from that, but still President George Bush rubber-stamped the United Nations report and continually kept the funding up for the United Nations reports and kept funding up for all the global warming activists, kept James Hansen's funding at NASA, never, never really um, challenged the narrative and always actually supported the UN process and the global warming talking points. So what happened was even then though, 2003, 2005, 2008, 2009, all these cap and trade bills went down in defeat. The 2009 bill did pass the house, but only after severe arm twisting. And then they were just basically let to die because what happened was when congressmen went home to their districts to say, hey, I voted for this cap and trade bill, which is going to make energy more expensive. That's when the town, at town hall meetings, they were booed, jeered, laughed at, ridiculed, ridiculed. The chairman of the Agriculture Committee, Colin, uh, uh, Congressman Ferguson, I believe his name was, was literally after the town hall meetings in his home state, Minnesota, announced he would never support cap and trade again after he had just voted for it. Uh, and Mike Castle in Delaware faced the same kind of reaction when he got back. That was the birth of the Tea Party movement back then, and largely born on both the health care bill and the cap and trade bill. And what happened was cap and trade global warming regulations, if you will, were dead on arrival in Washington. So skeptics were patting themselves on the back. And we thought we'd had a major victory and that the battle was going to be over for quite some time. Well, that wasn't the case. And this is where I think President Obama 
has surpassed Lyndon Baines Johnson in terms of his uh, his, his talent and, and effectiveness in expanding state centralized power and is now rivaling only uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the history of the American Republic in terms of presidents who have in their in their just in their terms consolidated centralized planning and taken away more liberty. President Obama, by bypassing Congress and using the EPA executive orders, has essentially imposed climate bills on America without a single vote of Congress and without the American public being largely aware of it. And what I mean by that is the, the Obama administration has been very clever. They talk about childhood asthma. They talk about air pollution. They talk about CO2 being a pollutant. They try not to even use the phrase CO2 very often. They're doing it all under a clean, clean air umbrella. And it's been effective as hell because Republicans haven't made a big issue out of this. The public doesn't really understand what's going on. But meanwhile, coal plants are essentially being shut down. They're, they've already announced they're going to be going after fracking through regulations. We have new ozone standards, um, which is sort of part of this whole push uh, of just continuing to go after any kind of fossil fuel burning energy. And what's happened is Obama succeeded. Republicans have threatened to defund the EPA, which isn't going to happen. They've threatened other sorts of things, which they haven't done. Industry is trying to do lawsuits against the EPA, which historically have done squat. And, you know, people get all excited. Oh, we're going to do this lawsuit and we're submitting this testimony. And then some judge, usually appointed by Clinton or, or even Bush or Obama, just rules against it and they get nowhere. And these regulations uh, continue to go forward. Well, that's where we are now. And now the second phase of that is we got Paris, which we previously mentioned. President Obama, believe me, if there's any piece of paper to sign, he will sign it. Now, you could, you could, you could talk to pe people from CEI and other groups, and they'll tell you, well, this will be meaningless. This is symbolic. It's not going um, to be binding. It's going to be purely voluntary. The problem with that is, is, is that even if it all comes down to the next election, because if the next president is President Hillary Clinton or some other Democrat, then it really doesn't matter if the UN obligations are that binding because they're going to do what they can in concert with the EPA executive order to start continuing to limit uh, U.S. emissions and i.e. go after carbon-based energy to meet those UN obligations so they can be, you know, be seen as a successful treaty. And that's the problem we face. President Obama has openly announced that they don't need this new treaty ratified because what they've found is a novel legal strategy that they're basically going to go back to the 1992 Rio Earth Summit Treaty and say this is merely an update of that treaty, therefore it needs no Senate ratification. And that's where he can, again, bypass Congress. So with a one-two step, domestic climate legislation and international climate legislation, they have essentially and potentially beaten global warming skeptics, even though global warming skeptics, according to Gallup polling, have won the battle of public opinion. There's no more concern about global warming in 2015 than there was in 1989. As not only does global warming appear dead last or second to last on every major poll of, of issues, but it's dead last on environmental issues, according to Gallup. In other words, species extinction, deforestation, clean air, clean water, habitat destruction, all rate as higher environmental concerns than global warming. Global warming skeptics could not have been more successful when it comes to public opinion. We couldn't have been more successful in terms of beating climate bills in the Congress and rolling back cap and trade and stopping Kyoto Protocol. But we were not ready to have democracy bypassed, to have someone as ruthless and, I will say this, competent. I saw a bumper sticker that said, incompetent President Obama. He is not incompetent by any stretch of the imagination. He's probably one of the most competent presidents we've had. He's doing exactly what he wants to do, and he's succeeding wildly at it. So we, have, we may have lost the global warming battle in terms of trying to prevent legislation, not because we didn't win the science, not because we didn't win public opinion, not because we didn't have the politics in Congress, certainly, and even state houses, but because President Obama's ruthlessness in bypassing democracy and the weakness of the Republican uh, opposition led, of course, by Speaker Boehner and uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Well, let's first do a postmortem on what's happened so far. So what, what's your analysis of what should have been done? You mentioned you know, the idea of weakness and, and just people trying to hit the jackpot with a particular lawsuit. You know, if you could engineer the thing with hindsight, or even you can share what you've said in the past or both, what should have happened? 
Well, what should have happened is using that momentum back in 2010 and 11, when the climate cap and trade bills were defeated, President Obama then started, and I believe it was 2000, late 2014 that he really started with the EPA, started the whole process, you know, effect, um, um, accelerated it. The Republicans needed to put it on their radar, and it was never on any of the major Republican talking points or, or uh, radar, even in even in um, on speaker level, even on skeptical levels, and even in hearings. There were there, of course, would be some hearings on the EPA regulations, but it was it was the kind of stuff that is so effective. The reason Washington bureaucracy grows, the average person out there would have no understanding of the bureaucratic speak of the, you know, talking about uh, Boiler Max standards at coal plants and, and just getting into all the minutia and regulation. It just wouldn't apply. And what Republicans needed to do was turn it back into a global warming debate. They needed to say they failed the climate bill in Congress. It never made it to the Senate for a vote. And so they're doing this regulatorily and not just as some talking point, you know, in a, in a speech, but they needed to make it front and center. They needed to possibly threaten a government shutdown. If you're going to do a government shutdown over other issues, believe me, global warming should have been one of those big issues. And that would have raised the public radar on this. But having said all that, it's still a very difficult issue to fight because the Supreme Court had empowered the Obama administration back in 2007 by ruling carbon dioxide could be regulated as a pollutant if EPA bureaucrats were determined that it was a pollutant. And of course, that didn't take much effort for EPA to just declare uh, carbon dioxide a pollutant and then for the Obama administration to follow on it. Keep in mind, they don't have to regulate. The Supreme Court ruling did not say they had to regulate CO2 as a pollutant. They said they may be able to if it's determined that way. So you know, you've heard some people say, well, a Republican would have to do the same thing because the Supreme Court ruled. That's not the case. That's only if, the, if you wanted to fall, if they want, wish to. And so I think what was missing was any kind of use of raising this issue. The American public essentially were hoodwinked and the Republicans allowed it. All the cap climate bills they had opposed for years, carbon taxes and cap and trade and UN treaties, it was able to slip right in under their radar without them ever realizing it. And that was a shame. This needed to be raised up. I know because as a, as a um, media person, when I would try to go on, try to get an appeal to talk radio to even talk about you know, the EPA climate regulations, it was boring. If there was a cap and trade bill, talk radio would light up. If there was a, you know, Al Gore talking about global warming, talk radio would light up. This was the, and this was important because without the grassroots, without the rank and file Republicans and the and conservative activists and liberty loving people and people who wanted uh, energy freedom being aware of what was going on, they were able to just steamroll all this, and that's essentially what happened. So Republicans mostly failed by not raising it as an issue and not threatening to, to severely cut EPA budget unless these regulations were overruled. They never chose to fight on it. They just rolled over and let it happen. They really did nothing. I have a perspective on this, which I've talked about before, which is that I don't I think there's always a danger in thinking of the issue as global warming in the sense that to the extent there's a phenomenon, it's a byproduct or a side effect of using fossil fuels. So the real issue is fossil fuels. And then if you're thinking about it intellectually, the question is, is there this byproduct or side effect that's consequential enough to even think about restricting them? And the answer is definitely no, uh, for all the reasons that I'm sure you, that you've detailed and that, that many of us have detailed. But, and, and if you notice with the issue of energy, that's a lot of what uh, got people upset about cap and trade, that their energy costs would go up. And I think there was there's this there's was this opportunity and still is this opportunity for Republicans to own energy as an issue and to say we have this amazing energy opportunity and to point out that climate catastrophism or global warming alarmism, whatever you want to call it, is getting in the way of that opportunity and is, in fact, uh, impoverishing a lot of people. And, and that just doesn't seem to be an issue for Republicans at most they're, they're either reactive when the climate issue comes up, when fossil fuels comes up in the form of the climate issue, say with cap and trade, or as you pointed out here, they ignore it. They just, they allow the Democrats to go nuts on it. And then at the last minute, they do these things like say, let's defund the EPA or let's do this lawsuit, which doesn't at all connect with the public. Yes. And I, I, I agree with you. And when I refer I'm referring loosely to bringing up you know, global warming as an issue in, in talk, on talk radio and everything else. You know, part of global warming is 
here's what they want to do with our energy. They want to shut down X amount of coal plants. They want to go after fracking. They want to increase their energy costs. They want to centrally plan it. They want to mandate that states come up with their own regulatory plans. So you're going to have this, this patchwork of regulation, which, which they're trying to do on purpose because they want there to be all these different standards because then what's the favorite liberal refrain after – after states are mandated by EPA to come up with some kind of emission scheme to meet the EPA requirements, then you're going to hear the liberals and the central planners say, well, we can't have this patchwork of all 50 states. We need a uniform standard. And this is the way we ended up with national uh, safe, um, speed limit laws and a whole host of other things, one-size-fits-all solutions. But you're absolutely right. It's got to be but, – but I believe it's got to be a one-two punch. And one of the battles I had when I was in the Senate – uh, not as a senator, but as a staffer when I worked for, <laughs> for the environment. Just to be clear. <laughs> Declare that, yeah. Uh, when I worked in the Environment and Public Works Committee, you had a school of thought that said, never bring up the science. We're only going to talk about the cost. As Republicans, we don't want to be seen as being against the science. Well, to me, and that was a big battle, the problem with that is the public is a certain segment of the public, too, that lights up on the science. And I can bring this up as you know my experience. When I would do television, radio, or any other form of media, when you talked about the cap and trade bill back in 2008, 2009, 2010, they didn't really want to – well, how much is an average family of four going to pay more? How many coal plants have been cut down? How many workers are out of a job? A lot of that kind of stuff just – it comes in the realm of policy wonkism too. It doesn't capture the public's imagination. If you turn it around and you say Al Gore's film, which had – you know, which a British court has ruled at all these eras, you know, they're claiming that these regulations will impact global temperature when they won't even impact global CO2 level, as was the case with both cap and trade and the current EPA regulations, when people feel they're swindled, it's a lot by a by a science that even if you buy the global warming narrative, and to a large extent, you know, skeptical scientists can because they say yes, CO2 has an effect, but it's so small you can't even detect it, uh, or it's you know, a beneficial effect, or it's only going to be as a gentle, slight warming. Even if you buy that, these regulations would have no impact. Not only on, again, the climate, but on CO2 levels and or potential storms. So when people get the idea that they're being swindled, and you can go further and say even if you accept the catastrophe vision by people like Al Gore or activists like Bill McKibben, these solutions would have no impact. And we know that because they freely admitted, EPA director, EPA chief admitted before Congress earlier this year that the EPA regulations would not have any, any measurable impact on the climate. But, they'll, but their real answer, and Senator Whitehouse and others will point out, well, it's a, it's a first step that's going to motivate the rest of the world, and then China and India and everyone will fall in, and then that will actually reduce carbon dioxide emissions. But I think once people realize that this is all symbolism and that if we did face a catastrophe, there'd be no impact, that's a much more complete picture than just focusing on the economic costs. But the economic costs are, of course, what this is all about. Energy freedom is what this is all about. But you can't lose that other uh, other key part, which is the science. And that was what I always advocated for. And I think many Republicans run from the science. And I don't think they, should, they shouldn't be out yeah, making that, grand, that I... They shouldn't make grand pronouncements. I'd just be happy at this point if Republicans would say, fine, let's accept President Obama's vision. What impact will these EPA climate no, rates I, have? I would fight the hell out of that. Because yeah. you can't concede that. But th this goes to what I agree with in your point, which is that, that there's, no such, there's not a separation with these issues. You can't say, oh, well, I, I'm not going to care about the science, but I'll just care about the economics. Or I just care about science and I don't care about economics because what the science is, the, the relevant part of the science is the science of the damage to human life, real or imagined, that will be done by using fossil fuels. So if you're making an overall evaluation about fossil fuels and what policy should be, you need to know that information about damage. And as a responsible citizen, just as you wouldn't say, well, oh, I have no economic, I have no opinion about the economics because I'm not a PhD economist. Yes. No, you yeah. would say, I want to know the best information and what I want to know is what conclusion people have reached and what evidence they have. And so I want to know why someone claims that, say, energy prices will go up. And by the same token, if they say that the planet is going to turn into a furnace, I'd like to know what evidence, for instance, and you can ask basic questions such as, what predictions have they made in the past? How have those turned out? Why did they turn out the way they turned out? Everybody has to use experts in a responsible way, and you have to recognize that there's nobody infallible that you have to use independent judgment, but it's not that you ignore experts or you ignore the issue of science. It's that you ask questions and you look for the people 
with the best answers. And in this capacity, I think what you've done is very important. And I think what Heartland has done is really important because a lot of libertarian types said when Heartland started those conferences that, oh, you shouldn't get into the science. And think about what this means. What the hell is the science? It's like yeah. science was a ca with a capital T, you know, the with a capital T and science with a capital S. I mean, there's no, what is that? It's not like this, it, it acts like there's this monolithic thing on a tablet that just came down versus here's a body of knowledge. Some of it is known well, some of it isn't known well. We have to apply that body of knowledge to this bigger picture question of what to do about energy. And obviously the people in that field have to explain to us, what do they know? How do they know it? What don't they know? What's more speculation? And they've done a horrible job of that. And anyone with common sense can point out that the climate science field has done a horrible job of actually explaining what it knows, and in many cases has misrepresented what it knows, or or allowed public figures like Michael Oppenheimer to misrepresent what it knows. And you don't need to be any kind of genius or scientist uh, to recognize that. So that's just to say I do agree 100% that this goes to what the candidates should say. They need to engage the issue and, and accuse their opponents of scientific malpractice, which you can perfectly well do if you're not a... Uh, a professional scientist just by saying this is the moral obligation of a scientist just like a plumber is to tell me his conclusion very clearly and tell me how he got there and tell me how certain he is and these guys have not done that so they failed so right. I'm not going to listen I'm not going to call them the plumber it's like I don't just obey the plumbing if the guy flooded my house five times I'm not right and if that plumber had a huge bill you would say you would want to check maybe with another plumber to get a yeah, second opinion exactly. and that's what and that's where and by the way that is one of the most persuasive arguments for climate skepticism is because when you have recently 20 global warming scientists essentially 20 of them signed that letter calling for rico racketeering organized crime charges against climate skeptical scientists and industry who they considered, you know, similar to the tobacco industry. Senator Whitehouse has been spearheading this. Naomi Oreskes has been supporting this whole movement. And now, of course, there's a recent movement to go after ExxonMobil because they allege that Exxon knew in the 1970s the seriousness <laughs> of global warming, which is just silly. They had a guy go do a presentation. They could have had Reed Bryson and many of the other scientists in the 70s come warn about global cooling. And you could say Exxon knew about cooling. And this it is the most nonsensical Exxon thing. Knew, Exxon knew there was a greenhouse effect. But here's something that'll sadden your heart, Alex, is Exxon responded recently to this, and they are basically saying, hey, we supported the UN IPCC. We did this. In fact, the new chairman of the IPCC, uh, I believe from South Korea, he actually was an Exxon economist in previous years. So Exxon is touting their climate warmism green credentials instead of, go instead of uh, going after the fact that, you know, challenging them in a way that would be more of uh, you know, promoting fossil fuels. So Exxon, uh, sadly, their PR group hasn't learned anything from this. So they even make it hard for skeptics don't even really want to defend Exxon. Not that we not that we would anyway. In fact, they give the la latest analysis I saw was they'd given more money to green groups than they ever gave to skeptics uh, to appear green. So this whole idea that Exxon or oil industries funding skeptics is just the, one of the silliest uh, out there, especially when you consider proportion on this. So. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you look at just their both both to the green groups who are just avowedly ideological uh, and, and anti-human. I'd argue about this, but also to the centers. I believe they gave a hundred million dollars to Stanford Center on this, and that is a center of climate catastrophism. So yes, it, it's it's just this narrative about the industry funding this army of defenders. I it should have been true. Uh, given the irrationality of the attackers and the government pseudoscientific monopoly behind them, that should have been true. But it's it's a false mythology. I mean, it's just complete mythology. Okay, so now let's go. So we talked a, uh, a bit about what's happened recently, uh, how there have been all of these attacks on energy freedom through this, you can call it clever, but certainly unconstitutional means, but because of the way that Republicans have handled it because of the way it's been portrayed in the public. It hasn't gotten the outcry either on energy grounds or science grounds or constitutional grounds that it should have. And now, now we have, so we obviously need to do a lot about that to reverse that, but now we have this upcoming summit in Paris. And, and my experience is that this is very much something that people on the inside are much more aware of than people on the outside. I don't feel as if the general public knows what's coming up and how consequential it is. And I'm sure many of our listeners don't. So give us some background on the up, on the upcoming summit and, and tell us if, if uh, also as part of that, 
is this different from these other climate summits? Because we usually hear about them often after the fact, and then yes. usually the, the left is despairing because they couldn't shut down the entire international economy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, here's the deal on this. The public, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, and I can do this. If, when I go to these, and I've been going to like pretty much every UN summit, climate summit since 2002, and you know, it's a great ticket if you can punch it. Uh, you know, I get to go to Johannesburg, South Africa, Durban, South Africa, Kenya, uh, Indonesia. I went to the United States Senate in Indonesia to their Bali summit at Bali, oceanfront resort paid for by the State Department. I had first class round trip tickets of fifteen thousand dollars, and you know, with a bed that laid fully down my own pod, which was the first time I'd ever flown like that in my life when I went for the U.S. Senate. And this was these were incredible luau's every night, uh, palm tree, oceanfront beach, hot really? tubs, everything you can imagine. Even though the world is ending. Yeah, <laughs> at one of these summits, they actually flew in European leaders flew in ex uh, exotic chefs to make caviar and all sorts I of stuff. So that the world leaders. Else after exotic, well, <laughs> well, actually, at the same one I'm referring to, this was in Johannesburg. It was an Earth summit. They actually uh, ha uh, had. They actually, there's a whole incidences of the prostitutes going up, increase in use of prostitutes. They end up actually getting rid of all the homeless people. They'll put up barriers around the whole conference center to try to make the cities look pretty during these conferences. But it's a lavish, expensive party. And I believe each conference, which lasts about a week to 10 days, has the same emissions of like all the African countries combined for like a year. You know, they come up with all these stats on it. So these are high carbon intense hypocritical, lavish events. Um, and this one in Paris will be no exception. The reason people should care about this one, and it's very hard to get them to care about previous ones, because we haven't really had any UN's climate summit that consequential really since 1996's Kyoto Protocol one. And that was when Bill Clinton was president and they signed it. Uh, and I, what happened here was in 2009 was your second biggest one. That was a huge news media. That was right. That had all the major networks covering it. That had President Obama, Hillary. Hillary actually referred to the 2009 UN Climate Summit when she said they chased down the Chinese in the meeting. And of course, uh, you know, they were unsuccessful. Thank God that meeting collapsed. But what's happening this time and the reason people should care is for the first time since the Kyoto Protocol of the 1990s, they are going to be trying to update that and they're going to they're going to have the United Nations I'm sorry the United States fully on board with President Obama worried about his climate legacy now the pages in the New York Times explain this better than I could they said that John Kerry's climate legacy has eluded him President Obama is looking for his legacy in climate they are both going to be there and they are as I mentioned earlier as long as there's some piece of paper they can that they can sign the President Obama will sign it the question is to how far this will go as many people currently think it's going to just be a voluntary, non-mandatory, you know, with no teeth type of uh, uh, agreement. It all depends on what they can twist the arms of China, India. India has actually basically said, and they've said this in years past, when nearly 40% of our residents don't have running water and electricity, we're not going to limit our emissions. They've told this to the United Nations. China has no interest in doing this either. However, China is a very shrewd player. China realizes that you know, the more they can get the rest of the world to, to, hand, to regulate themselves and tie their own energy economy up, China is going to benefit. China's agreement that President Obama did last year essentially was an agreement, this, actually it was earlier this year, an agreement that basically said we're going to continue what we're doing for the next 25, 30 years and we won't change our projected course. President Obama agreed to that and then said it was some major breakthrough. China's laughing at us. The, the, the problem we have right now is Australia threw out their climate skeptic uh, leader earlier this year and Canada just threw out Stephen Harper and replaced it with the global warming uh, Trudeau who just got elected. And so we are traditional allies, and meaning, meaning our, meaning global warming skeptics, people who want energy freedom, or the allies of our governments aren't there. So we find ourselves, Alex, oddly in a position of rooting for the Chinese to scupper this whole deal again. Who would have thought that anyone who cares about U.S. sovereignty, energy freedom, uh, who's opposed to global governance would be rooting for the Chinese to essentially throw the monkey wrench in this whole climate treaty. So that the China, and I'll put it even more simple terms for you, Alex, and this is the headline of your podcast. China may have, be the last best hope 
for American sovereignty, energy independence, and freedom at this conference. So all, all hail China, and let's root for China to mess up this deal. Man, you, you're, you're looking to be quoted out of context on all, all of China. <laughs> well, at this conference, I mean, we're going to be, and that's the truth, we're going to be rooting for China to put up enough roadblocks to prevent any kind of deal. Uh, because otherwise, if the deal goes through, as I said, even if it's not binding, mandatory, it's going to be a blueprint that the United States is going to follow. President Obama can do more executive orders. He can direct the EPA, other agencies to start following to try to get us in line with whatever voluntary commitments we signed on to at this uh, accord. And Congress, again, will, will not be submitted for ratification because they say it doesn't need to be. And I don't, again, I don't know if that's going to be a constitutional case. I don't have any faith in the courts at this point. So it all comes down to really the next president, regardless of what happens actually in, in here, is it comes down to the next president. If the next president is President Jeb Bush, President Chris Christie, President uh, John Kasich, then global warming activists have essentially won because I don't see those kind of presidents reversing and going in and reversing EPA climate regulations. I don't see them withdrawing from all this. I don't see them strong enough. I don't see them ranking global warming high enough. We have a much better chance with the president, Ben Carson, with the president, Donald Trump, although I have my doubts that he would actually appoint people that would be, you know, actually competent on these issues. I'm not sure exactly who Donald Trump would appoint, given you know, I'm afraid he's going to get a lot of establishment people. But I think the next president is key. If it's a Democrat, then the EPA regs are permanent, just like Obamacare regulations are permanent. And if you look back at the whole history, I heard Walter Williams speak at Heritage Foundation earlier, and my, I wanted to ask him this question so badly. Maybe you have the answer, Alex. But essentially, when you get centralized planning, and we're talking about the energy economy, which is massive, people have estimated it's much, it's this much more serious, this UN treaty, these EPA climate regs, energy regulations, than the Obama healthcare, which was rightly painted out to be a disaster for, for planning and a massive central planning effort. But you think about that, and the energy economy is so much larger, so much more consequential, if you will, to Americans' lives, and yet people are silent. It's, no one's really fighting this on any big level. Maybe people in power is what I'm referring to. So the gist of what I'm asking, what I was trying to ask Walter Williams, I'll ask you. I'll turn this interview around. Is there an example of countries that after they've come very far down a centralized planning path and got more and more statist, where they naturally evolve out of it slowly or does it have to be total collapse? And can you name countries that have evolved out of it slowly? In other words, what I'm getting at is the core question of, what hope do we have if the next, if the next president's Democrat and we have to wait four or eight years to go after a lot of these central planning things, be it energy regulations and or uh, health care and other things? Can we evolve out of it or does the country have to collapse? If you look back at Reagan's first term, he reversed a lot and did a lot his first term. But by his second term, it was basically he coasted and was a status quo. And the Reagan revolution was over by the second term in many real ways. And then even Republican Congresses in 94 when they won, you have a little blip at the beginning. But essentially, statism wins and you get the status quo. Can you be more optimistic? Can you answer that question? What countries evolve out slowly? Do we have, do we have historical models we can follow? Because that's where I'm getting my cynicism from. I can't figure out where, we can, where our model is. Well, there's two things. There's the examples, and then what's the mechanism behind the example? Well, exactly. Once you have the example, we can examine it. Yeah. Well, but there's other, like, you can sometimes look at shorter-term phenomena and see a certain mechanism. So in terms of the mechanism, I think it, there, have, there have to be significant shifts in culture and, and particularly significant shifts in ideas. That's certainly the mechanism, the core mechanism by which it, the freedom diminishes. I disagree with people who say it's just that the greedy poor people are calling for the expansion of the welfare state. It's, it's almost always the thought leaders who are calling for the expansion of statism. Even if you look at something like communism, even with Nazism, you had a lot of the thought leaders uh, supporting that. I mean, what I always look at, which now you wouldn't exactly call it a slow transition, but is, is the United States. I mean, that is, it was a much more status place and you had people rebel. Now, granted, they started a revolution and that's not <laughs> right. very pleasant. But nevertheless, the, see, for me, the core, there's the dynamic of can you do it peacefully, which is nice, but the violent, it's not as if violent revolution, if we had a violent revolution today, it wouldn't, I don't think it would be for freedom because the culture isn't suited. And, and just let's be clear, everyone, I am not advocating violent revolution at all. That's why yes. I do Power Hour, you know, which is, which is about, uh, 
you know, uh, mechanical and electrical power and about the power of the mind, not about the power of guns. We resist the power of guns in the form of the state via, by a peaceful means, just, just for the record in case anyone wants to take it out of context. But what you have in the United States and, and what you have more broadly is you have, a, uh, you have an enlightenment that makes that possible. Then before that, you have a renaissance. And, and in general, there's a lot less statism going forward. So you have this transition from the Middle Ages to uh, the Renaissance, Enlightenment. And I think ideas are ultimately what, what drives society. So I think often people expect that you're going to get a shift without really challenging the ideas. And I think often Republican, Republicans need to ask themselves, are, are, our, are we really offering any new ideas? Or are we just offering a light version of what the Democrats do? So if you take even healthcare. What, were, what did the Republicans stand for in healthcare? Could they make that case coherently? What was their moral view? What, did, they have a, did they have a clear concept of liberty and healthcare and what that would lead to? Yeah. Or did they just have, this is growing too quickly? Because if you want to talk even about the problem with conservative as a concept, it, it, it means as a, as a concept, its pure meaning is let's conserve what is old. But the right. thing that we're, we want to conserve legitimately is not old or new. It's a timeless principle of, of freedom. But the Founding Fathers weren't conservatives. They were revolutionaries. And to advocate freedom is a, a completely revolutionary idea in the history of human civilization. So I think just the way to, to say, oh, we're conservatives and they're progressives is just to completely concede it. So the, the bottom line is you need ideas. You need to be able to defend them. They need to be distinctive. They need to be persuasive. But we see throughout history that movements with better ideas lead to more freedom. That's just in sh such short supply because the statists have been in the lead and the the freedom side often just tries to just tries to stop, you know, like they try to stop the bleeding a little bit or slow the bleeding, but not say, well, well, actually, no one has to bleed. We can actually build a, a better world through freedom. Right. Well, uh, yeah, but as I look at, you know, more practically in terms of, you know, 2015, 16, as I look at the Republican field, I don't know. Again, it, it comes down to even if politicians sound the right rhetoric. And I, you know, I think what you're doing with helping Republicans with an energy plan, that's exactly what's needed. They need a blueprint yes. to go forward and, and, and something they can actually um, yeah, put into action. The problem is, you get a couple, you know, most politicians say give you throwaway lines and then you, you realize they don't, you know, like, like for instance, Jeb Bush is out there somewhat talking about, oh, we can, you know, as advisors, well, we can possibly re repeal the EPA regulations. It's a, it's a good possibility. And you realize his advisors are no other than Carl Rove who's making these comments. So it's, it's warmed over leftovers from the previous Bush administrations, which were frankly disasters when it came to this. People say, oh, well, Bush prevented cap and trade. Bush never allowed UN. Well, the same thing. But the point is, those weren't going to happen at that point anyway in our country. And Bush allowed all this stuff to fester and never challenged anything. And I think um, the problem we have is in Washington is even when you get a Republican, when you think, oh, this has changed, it ends up being recycled all the previous uh, – right. All the previous uh, cabinet members and everything from the, it's typically at this point it's all previous Bush administration people. So, but it's it's a frustrating thing because people need to be aware of what's going on and you're, what you just said is exactly right. They're not being told. You mentioned healthcare. One of the biggest objections I remember from the media right when healthcare was going on was the failure of Obama's website, and I couldn't believe that that was such a big issue to just focus on. I know. Oh, they the feel website like been given a gift. It's the same thing with the the stupid thing with Romney, with Obama being tired in the first debate. And you can tell that because these guys have no ideas, uh, and you know that's, that's not really mean, that's just the truth, but because Romney and that, that group had no ideas, they're just so happy that Obama screwed up. But what do you expect is going to happen in the next debate? I mean, Obama's really smart. And if he's, if he's controlling the moral narrative on most of these things, he's going to come back and you don't have your story anymore. But the, this idea of clinging to these superficial things or these, these, these phony victories instead of offering something positive is wrong. And, and with the candidates, I've talked to people about this, including some of their biggest sponsors, about how to approach it. Because they'll say to me, they'll ask me, which candidate do you support? And my view is that's not the thing you should think about first if you're talking about energy. The question is, are we giving them a framework to operate with where energy can be a winning issue? And to do that, you needed an integration among everything from the three-word talking point, but to the intellectually rigorous studies 
that back it up. You need a really integrated platform that's that's powerful that can work on all levels instead of instead of these cynical things by cynical advisors where they're asking somebody what are you thinking what does it mean to say i may be open to closing some of the that means you have no view that means you have yes. no coherent view whatsoever and nobody is going to be motivated by that versus exactly. you say i have a vision even if people disagree with 40% of the vision it's still better to have a vision where you say look i mean mine is America's energy opportunity. You know, we have the opportunity of a generation to revolutionize our country, to power the world, to create global energy abundance, and to become incredibly prosperous in the process. We have a moral obligation to do it for ourselves, uh, you know, to also helping everyone else around the world. And we've got, and these climate climate catastrophism is one of the greatest enemies of America's energy opportunity because it's people who think that the percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere is more important than the percentage of people who live to age 70. Exactly. That's well said. And you asked me earlier about the UN. Well, well, the biggest thing is happening and is they want to, this is essentially, if this treaty goes forward, there's going to be severe limitations on developing world uh, energy opportunities. And there was a recent story uh, where Greenpeace went into India and these villages and they gave them uh, solar panels. And the people ended up realizing the solar panels after the first night all basically shorted out because of the energy demands. So they actually were chanting, we want real energy, no more fake energy. Fake energy was the mandated uh, renewable energy, solar panels. The Greenpeace was, and the real energy they wanted was the carbon-based energy. And the way the UN, and the UN's very clever, the way they're going to silence the developing world is through this climate, I call it a climate slush fund, but the climate fund. It's $100 billion uh, per year funneled to the United Nations to developing world. So guess what? You have some of the leading developing world countries in Africa and other places. Their leaders are all for a UN treaty. Why? Because they're going to be on the receiving end of massive slush fund from uh, the United Nations. I interviewed a South African activist named Leon Lowe. And by the way, Alex, if you want an interview on development, energy, freedom, I highly recommend Leon Lowe. Really? Is one All of, right. Now, he, is he, he agrees to be on. He's on, Leon. You're he on he is a phenomenal, phenomenal interview. Uh, and his point was this money will end up going to bureaucratic capture. Uh, and it's going to build monuments to these politicians. It's going to allow them to get voters to support them. So they're, they're all lined up to, to support a UN treaty because they're being paid off. Now you talk to activists and they can sidestep the idea of how can you prevent all this carbon-based energy and prosperity to the developing world? Well, they'll say, hey, we're not gonna make these people poor. We want them to get out of the backbreaking poverty and we're gonna do it through UN redistrib redistribution of wealth. And keep in mind, the IPCC vice chair, the UN climate panel, a guy named Edenhofer, has actually said, we will redistribute wealth by climate policy. So they're not immoral in the sense that they're gonna keep Africans in mud huts. They want they want to turn it into this massive redistribution scheme going in to raise them a little bit more out of poverty, but never allow them to have Western-style prosperity like U.S. or Western Europe because they consider that immoral, that we need 19 more planets or et cetera to handle that. So the, the way they can sidestep the morality thing is they know what's best for them. It's a new form of colonialism. They're going to redirect these funds uh, 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 and it'll ultimately be trillions and trillions of dollars if the treaty goes forward to the developing world through the government to, to government aid, essentially, through UN to government aid and government leader aid. And that's the way they can get around saying, hey, we don't, we don't want them not to develop, but we want them to develop in the managed way that we see fit, you know, using renewable energy with this climate aid that we're going to direct. And Leon Lowe, actually, when I was at the summit, he said, and his words were very prophetic, he just said, the money will go to the countries that are best able to keep their citizens in poverty. That's who the United Nations will reward. And that's exactly what's going to happen. It's a, it's a perverse thing that's happening. And again, there's no one out there in terms of thought leaders, people in power really breaking this down. When I would go to these UN summits when I was working in the Senate, I would watch the Bush delegation and it was appalling. I ended up stopping going to the morning briefings because they were all in there. They weren't going to sign any UN treaty 
And, but they would sit there and they would play the game along with it. And the Bush administration sent all their envoys and they would support the whole, all the science, all the claims. But they would always say, oh, well, you know, unless China and India join, we're not going to ruin our economy. And they would play this game. But meanwhile, they legitimized the whole process. And every year this went on. And this is what it leads to. Then you get the right president who's going who's gonna to cash in on all of the pathetic previous Bushes we've had as president and their efforts, uh, you know, their lack of efforts are now going to be turned into success for the global warming and, and going after energy freedom. All right. Well, I'm, I'm confident. Uh, I'm confident it's going to change this election. So we're going to end on that note. Mark, thanks so much for all your work. Where can people learn more about you and the movie? We'll go to climatedepot.com, uh, like Home Depot, except climatedepot.com. And the website is climatehustle.com. We'll have uh, trailers, two trailers up now, and we'll have a third one up very shortly. Uh, but I don't want to end it on that negative of a note. I mean, as you know. Well, I, nothing... ended, it, I ended it positively. I'm going to cream these guys. Okay. Well, I like that. We just need, we need, and I think even more important, we need to get to some of these presidential candidates and give them our vision. Like even Donald Trump's asked about global warming. His now, his answer nowadays is, oh, well, you know, who cares about global warming? He asked the audience, no one raised their hand. He moves on. Well, that's not an acceptable answer. We're stuck with EPA regulations. We're facing UN climate treaty commitments. And Donald Trump is by the Republican frontrunners just sidestepping the issue. He needs to come forward and say, here's how I'm going to overturn EPA. Here's how I'm going to withdraw us from the United Nations process. Here's how I'm going to defund the UN climate panel. That's what's missing. I've never heard any of those three points mentioned by any of the can well, uh, any says. of the candidates. Yeah, Cruz, some of them Cruz have mentioned says. overturning EPA. Yeah, yeah, they mentioned no, overturning Cruz, EPA. Cruz, is, Cruz is, well, yeah, Cruz has said some good stuff about it. Furian has said some good stuff about it. Uh, no, I'll, I'll say in my own part is, is I'm doing everything I can to get through to these guys, uh, in my own sequence of things, I, I try to work out. I think there's a sequence by which you have to approach these things. And in particular, with yes. the candidates, you have to know what are the things that drive them. So uh, I'll openly say I will, I, I will go to people who are influential over the candidates and say, get this in their hands. Yes. Like, tell them to look. If, you, if you're giving these people money because you want energy freedom, uh, then here's something much better to give them, test them, see whether they'll read this, see whether they'll talk about it. Uh, and this is sort of the, the, you know, people are always saying, oh, aren't you afraid to be associated with the industry or funded? Well, I'm not funded, but even if I was, I'd be proud of it. And I certainly, I'll tell it to any CEO who wants to listen, give me a call and I will tell you how to spend your money on these candidates and namely do not give any money to any candidate unless they have a vision for promoting energy freedom in the world because they will otherwise they will get creamed in the debate yeah. with Clinton. So they need better messaging. Uh, and that's, that's what we're going to create. And I think that, that, you know, this is an issue that, that you can take the moral high ground on for sure. I know this from experience. And if you do, then you're going to have Clinton there looking like the primitive catastrophist that <laughs> she is, you know, let alone Bernie Sanders. What I heard, by the way, the comment about cannot talk, him mentioning Nazis is pretty rich, you know, given that they're national socialists and he wants to make our nation socialist. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, that's a, that's a, that's a, a bit of a rant, but just so people know it. So it's, it's climatedepot.com and then what's climate hustle again? That's the movie coming out. Uh, yeah, is that on, but is that where they find, I know what climate hustle is, but where can they find it? Uh, climatehustle.com. Climatehustle.com. All right, Mark, great to talk to you. Thanks for being on. Thanks a lot, Alex. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Mark Morano for being on the show. Uh, he, he knows a lot. He's, he's very much an insider and in the good sense of it and, and very plugged in. I always like that different guests have different types of expertise and have different strengths relative to me because I am definitely not uh, the most plugged in person in terms of just knowing every little detail of the day-to-day -day things. So it's, it's great to talk to somebody who, who has that and can also generalize it into the big picture. So thanks, Mark, for coming on the show. All right, make sure that you go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter. That'll keep you up to date on all of our different energy plans. And this will definitely be the most, the, the biggest opportunity we've had to get involved with national politics to actually change the debate. I, I think that, that what's being put together right now, or what I'm putting together with some other people is is 
going to be a game changer, but it will require you. And first step for that is make sure that we're in touch. So make sure to get on the newsletter. Also, make sure to uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can do Alex Epstein. You can do Center for Industrial Progress. You can do I Love Fossil Fuels. You can do I Love Nuclear. You can do all four on each of those platforms. Let's see. Anything else I mentioned at the outset of the show, I'm speaking tonight at the University of Minnesota, and I, I don't think you're going to hear this, but you can at least look back. I've been doing a bunch of interesting media lately, a lot of speaking. I gave six speeches in six days. I got to I got to be at an event where Alex Trebek was the MC, so having him introduce me and then comment afterward, that was that was pretty fun. T Boom Pickens was there. Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who's from Southern California, uh, was there. He was slated. He was one of the major candidates to be Speaker of the House recently. So that was a really cool event in Taft, California. I've got to speak at lots of places. Anyone interested in, in, in a speaker, whether it's me or someone else affiliated with Center for Industrial Progress, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash speaking. All right. Our usual outro, we have, let's see, well, before we get to next week, uh, obviously any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Not sure who our guest next week will be, but he or she will be great. I think we've, we have maybe two months running of weekly power hour. I've gotten a lot of good feedback, so hopefully all of you are enjoying it. Uh, we got a really good suggestion from Mark Morano, so hopefully uh, that person will come on the show and talk about different threats to development and how attacks on energy freedom, attack development. But we've got a couple of other cool guests lined up that our team uh, uh, is recruiting. So we'll see what we can do. Anyway, uh, until then, I will talk to you next week. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.